right, John 20. So like I said, I am attempting the impossible. And uh, Lord willing, we will make it through this chapter. John 20, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So why has John written his gospel? We've brought this up over and over again. John 20, 31, he says, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life. But what does that mean? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that faith include? It's important to realize that when John says, believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, he means something very specific. He means the complete package of who Christ is and and what he has done. He's not after a general vague faith that, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, and you get to package that with whatever you think it means. It's not enough simply to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. You must believe all that his Messiahship includes. John's after a very specific kind of faith. It's a faith in Christ which embraces all that he is and all that he's accomplished. And anything short of that, that rejects an element or denies one of these core elements, is not true saving faith in Christ. I'll give you an example from 2 John 7. John talks about these deceivers that have gone out into the world that do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. You see, they confess Jesus Christ, but they don't confess it in the flesh. They have a reduced version of Christ. They've rejected an essential element of his Messiahship, that he's come in the flesh, and John calls them Antichrist. So John is after a very specific faith in in Jesus. So the question now is, why does John include chapter 20 in his gospel? Why not stop with chapter 19, John, with the crucifixion of Christ? It's because the resurrection of Christ is an essential element in his work as Messiah, which must be known and believed. And apart from it, you and those you share the gospel with will have a deficient and non-saving faith. A full-orbed saving faith in Christ requires a faith in him as a risen Messiah. And in this chapter, we're going to learn how Christ's first disciples came to this full and complete faith in Christ following his resurrection. You see, up to this point, none of Christ's disciples have believed in him rightly or fully. Their faith in Christ fell short of a truly Christian faith because they did not believe in him as a risen Messiah. Their faith in Christ certainly grew throughout his ministry, but they did not have a full-orbed Christian faith until what we're going to see this morning. So that's what John wants to show us, how they came to faith. But I think he's after something even more than this in this chapter. John also wants us to have certainty in the reality of Christ's resurrection. In this chapter, John is going to give us instance after instance of people, disciples, seeing the risen Christ with their eyes. And these were very skeptical men and women. They did not expect and they did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead. 
but they were confronted with indisputable evidence, and they came to a full and true faith in Christ. But the next question is, what about us? None of us have had the privilege of seeing or touching the risen Christ, right? So how can John or God expect that we could believe like the first disciples? And the point of this chapter is to answer that question. You see, only a select few were given the privilege of seeing and touching the risen Christ, but they were given this privilege so they could function as credible eyewitnesses. And that's how God has ordained his gospel to go forward, through eyewitness testimony, through which we would see Christ himself. So John's point in this chapter is to tell us that we do not have a less sure or a less real faith than the first disciples. Rather, we've been given everything we need for a faith just as sure, just as real, just as strong as the first disciples had. And we have that through testimony of eyewitnesses. And that's what this gospel is all about and what this chapter is all about. So in summary, I have three aims as I go through this chapter. Number one, that we would know the importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because we've already seen this over and over again in the farewell discourse. Chapters 14 through 17 have taught us the importance of it. But we're going to talk a little bit about it this morning. Number two, that we would know the credibility of the witnesses that we have and we would have confidence in our faith. And number three, that we would know the method God has ordained for the gospel to go forward. So I've entitled this passage, I Have Seen the Lord, the Resurrection of Christ and the Credible Witnesses to His Resurrection. This entire chapter takes place on the first day of the week. You can see there in verse 1, it begins with the discovery of the empty tomb and it progresses with repeated appearances of Christ to his disciples and And in each of these scenes, we're going to be given eyewitness testimony, which is meant to be a window through which we too may seize what the first disciples saw. And we too would respond with the same kind of faith. So let's look first at verses 1 through 10, where we get the witnesses to the empty tomb and its message. Let's read it. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. 
So the scene begins with Mary Magdalene. She was a disciple of Christ. We saw her back in chapter 19 at the cross of Christ. And here she is coming to the tomb very early in the morning while it's still dark. But as she approaches the tomb, to her shock, the stone has been removed. And the only thing she can conclude is that Christ's body has been stolen from the tomb. Look at verse 2. She says they've taken the body of the Lord. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. Grave robbery was not entirely uncommon at this time. Robbers were, were known to break into tombs and to steal valuables. Um, sometimes even taking the body itself to take the expensive linen cloths and the spices that would have been on the body. And So Mary doesn't even go to investigate the tomb. She just assumes, okay, the stone is gone. Someone has taken the body. And so she runs to tell Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, most likely the Apostle John. And upon hearing this word, these two disciples now run to the tomb to check it out for themselves. We're told that the other disciple, John, outruns Peter and comes to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. He stands at the door and stoops and, and gazes inside, and we're told what he sees. Look at verse 5. It says he sees the linen cloths lying there. These were the linen grave cloths that were tightly wrapped around Christ's body. We, we saw them in chapter 19. They would have been wrapped and, and spices would have been put under the layers to, for part of the burial preparation. And the first thing that this tells us that, is that it cannot be as Mary has said. Robbers or anyone else intent on doing away with the body of Christ would not have gone to the trouble of unbinding him. And robbers certainly wouldn't have left the expensive spices, 75 pounds worth, and linen cloths behind. So that's what John sees, but he still doesn't get it. Nothing has happened yet for John. But as John is looking in, Peter now catches up, and true to Peter's impulsive character, he bursts right into the tomb, goes directly in. And he, too, sees the linen cloths lying there, but he sees something else. Look at verse 7. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. This is the head covering. It was a separate piece that was used to bind shut the jaw and to cover the head of the corpse. And he sees it wrapped up and lying in a place by itself. So John couldn't see this from where he was at, but Peter goes in and sees it. So, so why is that so significant? What's significant about this head covering? It says that it was folded up, or you can translate it, it was wrapped up. In fact, every time this verb is used in the New Testament, it's always used for the wrapping up of a corpse. So you wrap the corp up, corpse up with the linen claws. But here's the head covering lying in a place by itself, still being wrapped up. That's what I think John is saying. Perhaps still retaining some of its original shape. But there's no head in it. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think it becomes crystal clear when we compare this with what happened to Lazarus in chapter 11. John 11, 44 uses the same word for head covering. Look what it says. 
The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Same word. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus was raised, but he was still bound by his grave clothes. He could not get out. He was brought back to life, but the grave clothes still clung to his body. In other words, he was still mortal. It was not a resurrection. Poor old Lazarus had to die again. He was just resuscitated. Someone had to go unbind him. But when Peter enters the empty tomb here, he sees the grave clothes and the head covering still being wrapped up, but no body. In other words, Christ's body wasn't stolen, nor was it resuscitated. Something happened such that this body passed through the grave clothes and was no longer there. And the only explanation for that is a resurrection. In contrast to Lazarus, who was brought back to life, still bound in his grave clothes, Christ was resurrected with a glorious, glorified body which passed through his grave clothes, just as Christ will pass through locked doors and walls in the verses ahead. So that's what Peter sees, and we're not told how Peter responds to this, but look at verse 8. John now enters. And he saw the same thing that Peter did. He sees the face covering still wrapped up, and he not only saw, but he believed. That is, at this moment, and seeing these things lying there, John finally understood. He got it. He believed that Christ had been resurrected, which means that up to this point, John had not believed that. Look at verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, none of the disciples believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. None of them understood the Old Testament scripture which said he would. And that right there tells us that the disciples did not fabricate the story to fit their Old Testament expectations. None of them believed it would happen. And throughout Jesus' ministry, the disciples' faith has been real, but it's been incomplete. It's been progressively growing. None of them fully believed him as the risen Messiah, but John here finally believes. He still doesn't understand the Old Testament. He hasn't connected all those dots. That will happen after the Holy Spirit comes. But here he believes because he saw the witness of the grave clothes. And what's interesting is that John here comes to faith before he actually sees the risen Christ with his eyes, quite unlike all the other disciples. And I think it's meant to be a model for us. Because like John, we also don't see Christ. You will never see the risen Christ in this life with your eyes. And yet you believe in him through the witness of another, just as John believed in the resurrection of Christ through the witness of the grave clothes. So that was the witness of the empty tomb and its message. But now we come to the bulk of this section, the witnesses to the risen Christ and his messages in verses 11 to 29. And in these verses, Jesus is going to appear to Mary, to Mary Magdalene, to 10 of his disciples, and then to Thomas. 
And he's going to give each one of them an important message. And then those who see him are going to go out by bearing witness. Every one of them is going to call him Lord. They're going to say, I have seen the Lord, or we have seen the Lord. And it builds to this climax when Thomas finally confesses Christ, my Lord and my God. So let's look at these one by one. First, Mary sees the Lord in verses 11 to 18. We see first Jesus' appearance to Mary. Look at verses 11 to 16. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Perhaps she had returned with John and and Peter, and now as they go home, she stays behind. And as she wept, she stood, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she doesn't notice the, the grave cloth necessarily, but she does see two angels sitting in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? They're not asking for information. It's a a mild rebuke. What are you weeping for? Don't you know, Mary, what, what has happened? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Same thing she said back in verse 2. She still is not getting it. She's blinded by unbelief. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Perhaps she heard something behind her. She turns and looks, and there is the risen Christ standing directly behind her. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Again, a a mild rebuke to her. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So in this scene, Mary becomes the first eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And what's very interesting is that Mary does not immediately recognize Jesus. But if you think about the other resurrection appearances of Christ, this is actually quite common. Think about the men on the road to Emmaus, right? Christ appears and he starts talking to them and they don't recognize him. It's Jesus, but they don't recognize him right away. Well, why not? Well, I think we can learn from this something about the nature of Christ's resurrection and the nature of his resurrected body. The first thing we can say is that Jesus looked just like an ordinary human being, right? Mary thinks he's the gardener. He looks like a normal man. He had a real body, similar to our own. So there's a kind of continuity between his pre-death body and his resurrection body. It's a real body. It can be touched. It can eat. It still had the scars of the nails and the pierced side, as we will see. It was indistinguishable from an ordinary human But there was also some discontinuity, quite unlike his pre-resurrection body. This body can pass through grave clothes and through locked doors. And apparently, Jesus' appearance was quite different than what he had looked like before his death. And he was not immediately recognizable. But once it becomes clear that this is Jesus, they're able to recognize him. And I think we've experienced something like this. I was trying to think of an analogy. 
Think of the times that you haven't seen somebody in many years. Perhaps you saw them as a child, and then 20 years, 25 years later, you, you see them again, and you don't recognize them. They, they look completely different. Until you realize who it is. Maybe somebody told you, or you pick up on a small feature on, the, on their face, and you, and you see it, and, and, and now you, you see who they are clearly. And I think that's what's going on here. Jesus looked quite different, and yet it was still Jesus. So what was it that led Mary to recognize him? For the disciples, it's going to be the scars that's going to enable them to recognize this is Jesus. But what was it for Mary? Look at verse 16. It was Jesus calling her by name. Jesus said to her, Mary, probably in the way that he had always done throughout his ministry. She hears his voice. He calls her name and she knows his voice. She's his sheep and he is her shepherd. And so she believes and she calls him Rabboni. Immediately the blinders are lifted and she, she sees Christ, the first eyewitness of, of Christ. That's not all she gets. In verse 17, we get Jesus' message for Mary. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. There's a lot packed into this message of Christ. and each of these appearances, he's going to give a message to his disciples. And um, there's just too much there to unpack. So let me just summarize it briefly for you. I think he's saying something like this. Don't, don't touch me. He, she, she's probably kneeling, clinging to his feet, worshiping him. I think he's saying, don't get the wrong expectations. I'm not here to stay, Mary. Don't, don't get it wrong. I still have to ascend, but I've come to reveal myself to you and to my disciples to ensure your faith and what I've accomplished through my resurrection. So, so go and tell them what I have accomplished. And that's what he tells her. Notice he calls them my brothers. Through the resurrection of Christ, his disciples have a new relationship with him. We are his brothers. And because of that, we have a new relationship with God. My God is their God, and my Father is their Father. A renewed relationship with God because of the resurrection of Christ. And with that, Mary doesn't hesitate. She goes out as an eyewitness and proclaims the message Jesus gave her. In verse 18, she goes out and says, I have seen the Lord. Well, we're not told how the disciples responded to Mary's testimony, most likely with, with doubt and suspicion. But in verse 20, 19 to 25, we now get the ten disciples who see the Lord. Verse 19 gives us the setting. It's the same day of the week. It's later that day, Sunday evening, and the disciples are all in a, in a room. The doors are locked. I say it's ten disciples here because Judas is not here, and Thomas is not here, as we're going to find out. So the disciples are gathered in this room. It's still the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're gathered together, but they're scared. Christ, their leader, has just been put to death. They're fearful for their own lives. So this tells us that they also did not understand or believe the resurrection. And 
So it's into this setting now that Jesus comes and appears to his disciples. Let's read it, verse 19. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So that's how it begins, with Jesus' appearance to his disciples. And just note the the faithfulness of Christ here, coming to his still unbelieving disciples to comfort them in their fears and give them faith. Look what it says. It says he showed them his hands and his side. In other words, this is clearly Jesus. The scars from his nails and the place in the side where the spear pierced makes his identity unmistakable. But it's also a physical body. Notice it has flesh and bone. It can be touched. He's not a ghost. In other words, he, would, he came in flesh in the incarnation, John 1.14, and he was raised in real flesh. And that's an essential truth to be believed. Jesus repeatedly makes this point to his disciples. But, but why? Why is that so essential? What do you think? Why does it have to be a physical resurrection? Well, I think there's a lot we could say here, but I think primarily a physical resurrection indicates his triumph in the cross. He died as a real man. And to prove he accomplished redemption, he was raised as a real man. He was raised as a real man, in a real body as the first fruits of the resurrection, if he remained dead, if his body remained dead, he would still be under the curse. He did not remove the curse and could not guarantee your physical resurrection. So that's what he shows his disciples. He's a real human. He's physical, and it's also Jesus, evidenced by the scars. And verse 20 tells us they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The word seeing it means they're an eyewitness and they saw the Lord. There's that word again, building up to the fullest understanding of the Lord we're going to get at the very end. But Jesus is not finished. Look at verses 21 to 23. Jesus' message for his disciples. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is Jesus' message. Again, this is a ton packed in here. We could spend a lot of time, and I just don't have it, um, the time to spend in it. So let me just summarize it. He comes to them and proclaims peace. This is, again, another fruit of his resurrection. We saw it throughout the Upper Room Discourse. Peace. First, peace with God due to what he accomplished in his cross and in the resurrection. And peace, therefore, in their own hearts. They don't need to be afraid because of what he has accomplished for them. And and then he tells them about the mission that he's sending them on. We saw this all through the upper room. As Christ departs, he's leaving us, his disciples, behind as those through whom he will continue to work out his mission. And 
And then he breathes out and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And I think this is simply a symbolic act that Jesus is doing to show that through the resurrection, he has secured the gift of the Holy Spirit for his people. And as he returns to the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit. But I want to zoom in on verse 23. Look what it says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, what in the world does that verse mean? I think it simply means that disciples, you and I, are mediators of the gospel and its benefits. The forgiveness of sins is the great gift that is offered to this world. It is what was secured through Christ's resurrection. And as disciples, we are mediators of that gift. Well, how so? As we are witnesses to Christ. As the apostles pass on their eyewitness testimony, and as we pass on the apostles' words. And so that means that what people do with our message is the dividing line between if they are forgiven or not. I know in one sense that's pretty basic, but let that sink in how significant that is. What people do with the gospel message of the eyewitnesses and yours as you're faithful to scripture is the deciding factor in whether they will be forgiven or not. The forgiveness of sins is what Christ secured in his resurrection, and the way that would go out through him to the world is through us as his witnesses and through the first eyewitnesses. Well, to this, the disciples respond in verses 24 through 25 with more testimony. They bear witness just like Mary did. Look at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Same confession, they bear witness, and they now are eyewitnesses to Christ as well. But that brings us now to Thomas, verses 25 to 29, where Thomas sees and confesses the Lord. So look at the rest of verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas, just like all the other disciples, is skeptical. He's unbelieving. He doesn't believe it. He thinks they must have seen a ghost or something, not the physical resurrected Christ. And he says unless he receives hard physical proof, he will never believe. It's very strong in the Greek. So Thomas responds in this way, And it is the wrong way to respond to eyewitness testimony. He's first a model of how you are not to respond to eyewitness testimony. He's unbelieving, skeptical, just like all the other apostles probably would have been. But it's Thomas's very skepticism that makes him such a credible witness in the next verses. Thomas wasn't trying to prove Christ's resurrection. He didn't believe it. And so now, Jesus appears to Thomas. Verses 26 to 27, let's read it. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, 
According to Jewish reckoning, this would be the next Sunday. They're inside again. Thomas is with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Jesus does very much what he did the first time a week ago, comes to them, says, peace be with you. And then he takes up Thomas's challenge, reveals that Jesus hears even while he's away, another evidence of his deity. And he tells him to touch his scars and thrust his hand into his side again, revealing this is none other than the crucified Jesus and a real physical being. And he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Or you could translate it, don't be an unbeliever. Be a believer. Up to this point, neither Thomas nor any of the apostles were true believers in Christ in the fullest sense of the word. They didn't believe in his resurrection. And he gives Thomas real proof so that they would believe rightly. And in verse 28, we get Thomas's confession. Let's read it. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas calls him Lord, just as all the other eyewitnesses have called him Lord. But here, Thomas makes the connection that the others had not. His confession embodies the truest and fullest confession of every disciple. Thomas confesses the resurrected Christ as my Lord, which means nothing less than my God. He recognizes Jesus as the incarnate Lord of glory. D.A. Carson writes, Thomas thereby not only displays his faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but points to its deepest meaning. It is nothing less than the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. The most unyielding skeptic, has bequeathed to us the most profound confession. So this gospel begins and ends with the fullest identity of Christ, which is what all disciples must confess. How does John begin? John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Thomas here makes the connection. Seeing the risen Christ... He's my Lord, my master, but that means nothing less than he is also my God. That's what you must believe and confess. That's what John's after. And to this, Jesus now replies with his message for all his disciples. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, it's possible to take this as a rebuke to Thomas in the form of a question, but I think you can translate it actually as a a statement. I don't think this is so much a rebuke to Thomas as it is an affirmation of his faith. Jesus is saying, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen me, just like all the other eyewitnesses have believed because they have seen me. Your faith is true and good, and it's real, Thomas, and I affirm that. But it also prepares us for what Jesus says next. While Thomas's faith is true and real and right, it is not the model for future disciples. 
His faith is commendable. It's the faith of an eyewitness. But the way the gospel will go forward will not be by everyone having the same experience as the eyewitnesses. None of us have had that, right? The way the gospel will go forward is not by everyone being eyewitnesses, but through the word of the eyewitnesses. Jesus actually revealed himself only to a select few people. And he did it that way because it is his plan that the gospel go forward through credible eyewitnesses. That through the windows of the eyewitnesses, we would see the resurrected Christ. And Jesus pronounces a blessing. Look what he says. Blessed are those, that is truly happy, accepted by God, are those who not see nevertheless believe. That is, those who respond by faith to the gospel message of the eyewitnesses will be equally blessed and accepted by God as the first disciples. So the point is not to diminish Thomas's faith or to pronounce him less blessed, but to give the paradigm for how the gospel is to go forward for all future disciples like you and me. It's as we would believe, not by seeing, but through the eyes of the eyewitnesses. And that now brings us to the final verses. Verses 30 to 31, the witness of John and the purpose of this book. Let's read it. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So given what Jesus has just said, John now tells us why he wrote this gospel. John's gospel is the very expression of the model given by Jesus in the last verse. You see that? His gospel is the way Jesus intends for subsequent faith to come to Believers, John says, those who have not yet seen, those who have not seen yet believe are blessed. Therefore, I have written this gospel so that you may believe and be blessed. You see? In other words, John tells us here that the entire purpose of his gospel has been to accomplish the mission set up by Jesus in verse 29. As an eyewitness of Christ, John has composed credible eyewitness testimony so that we not seeing what John saw, can through John see and come to the same kind and certainty of faith that John himself had. John says that Jesus did many other signs before his disciples. There's that idea of eyewitness. He did it in front of his disciples. And he's not recorded all of them. He's recorded some of them. And he says these signs all those that he did through his earthly ministry and the final sign of his crucifixion and his resurrection, what we have just seen. John has recorded it. Why? So that through his eyes we would come to the same kind of faith in Christ that John himself had. And through that we would have eternal eternal life. This verse here is really the most succinct packaging of his gospel, you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
It takes the entire Gospel of John to unpack what he just said right there. So what is it you need to believe about Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. It's everything that John has declared about him in his Gospel. And John expects his Gospel to be a sufficient basis for a certain faith in Christ. To believe in Christ without seeing him with your eyes. So let's wrap this up. Let's bring all that. I know I've given you a lot of details. Let me give you three quick implications to take away. So what? What does this, what does this mean? Number one, we must know the firm foundation for faith in the written word. This tells us that as those who are not eyewitnesses, we have not been left with second best. Perhaps you thought something like that before. You think, man, if only I could have seen it with my own eyes. Or, man, my faith would be so much stronger if I could have just experienced all this myself. Right? Have you ever thought something like that? John's point is here is to say that you are not less privileged. It's not second best. You don't have a less certain basis for your faith. In fact, you have just as sure and solid a foundation for faith in Christ through the written word, through the eyewitnesses of John and the other apostles. John expects his gospel to be enough. God expects his gospel to be enough for you and for those you share the gospel with. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? Amen. So know the firm foundation for faith in the written word. Number two, we must know the way Christ has designed for his gospel to go forward. It's through his apostles and through us standing on the words of the apostles and bearing witness through those words. It's as we're faithful to the word that we carry the enormous role of being the very ones through whom forgiveness of sins would be dispensed to the world. Number three, we must know what Christ has accomplished for you in his resurrection. He rose from the dead in a physical body, which means he accomplished your complete redemption on the cross. He secured a body like his own, In the coming resurrection, he's given you the end time gift of the spirit and a restored relationship with the father. And it means that now you have been sent out in his place as he's returned to be the means through which he is continuing his mission in this world. So as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is actually how John brings to a close his gospel Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at John 21, which is uh, sort of an epilogue attached to the end and uh, a sweet, glorious ending. Um, But this is it. This is what John wants us to walk away with, the certain faith he wants from his readers, from you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. What confidence we can have in it. What certainty it is. I thank you for Christ and all that he accomplished for us in his resurrection. Oh, that we would know him and love him and lay down our lives for him as bold witnesses 
standing on the words of the apostles, as those through whom you continue your work in the world, through whom the world will receive forgiveness of sins. We love you, Father. Help us be faithful this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed.